Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And we will be picking back up in Romans chapter 7 where we left off. Romans chapter 7. If you've been following along with this, or been catching online the teachings, or if you've been here for the very first time, you'll be able to find that in chapter 6, now chapter 7, we started a new, uh, a new section of ours, uh, section 3 of the book of Romans, and the section 3 is on sanctification. Paul speaks of sanctification, the word sanctification is Haigo or hagios, meaning holy, that God has made us holy when we have put our trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's not only justified us, made us righteous, but he's, he's sanctified us, made us holy because of the work he's done. Not of things that we can do or things we say or, or not say or the do's or the don'ts of the religious world, but the fact that we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. And because of that, it's because it's nothing we can do. We see also in Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of, of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It was his body that took the penalty that we deserved for our sinful nature. But no, he took it and he paid for it with his own body. We also see in Hebrews 10.29, it's that he also, he counted the blood of the, of the covenant, which he was sanctified, a common thing in, 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 in the spirit of grace. So it's not only his body and his blood, that's why we do communion, that's why we remember the, what he's done for us and the forgiveness of sins, and we celebrate that. We have a joyful life and, and relationship with Christ because of the work he's done for us. And we receive that free gift willingly as we just put our trust our faith in him. And as we find at times in human nature, there are extremes we find. We find it even in Christian lives. After you've given your life to Christ, you think, oh, these extreme emotions that we have and thoughts can be settled. And yes, they do become settled. They do become less extreme. But we found in chapter 6, and we will find in chapter 7, that even as Christians, we can have very extreme thoughts when it comes to uh, grace and the law. In chapter 6, we saw one extreme. We saw that they, those who came to Paul, and Paul was anticipating as he's writing the book of Romans, this, this thought process, this extreme from, it comes from people that says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Or another way you can say it, since we are saved by grace, Paul, we are free to live as we please, Right? I can still do the sinful things I really want. I got rid of the ones that were really kind of hurting me, but the ones I didn't really want to let go, we can still live like that, right? Because by, by grace, we can still just live however we want to, and the grace will abound, right? And Paul certainly made a certain comment to us. He says, certainly not. When you give your life to Christ, you can't certainly continue to live in sin, you have to put those things away. Those are supposed to be dead to you. But what those extreme positions or motions or feelings in regards to these Christians here that he's speaking to is that extreme of the 
I have the license to sin. I have that license to sin. We call it the license of grace, right? No, Paul says certainly not. You can't continue to live your self-centered, your sinful nature. Supposed to be dead. Well, today in chapter 7, we're going to see the other, the pendulum swing. We're going to see the other extreme, the other side of that coin. We're going to see those who of the faith saying, we cannot ignore God's law. We are saved by grace, yes, but we must live under the law if we are to please God. We have do's, we have don'ts. We must do this, we do that. We have to dress a certain way. All these things that religion pours on or what we call this extreme expression, legalism, is placed on the people and the minds of the people. Or you apply it, that legalism, in your own life. And Paul addresses that as well in verse 7 here in chapter 7. And he says, certainly not. So we see two expressions of extremes. Oh, I can live however I want to. And I'm going to use grace as my, my justification. And or I'm going to put a heavy burden of legalism on people that they have to follow a certain way and do a certain thing and stand on your head a certain way and heavy, heavy burdens are laid upon them that God never intended. And they use the law to justify that extreme. But Paul addresses that today in chapter 7. Paul highlights this to us in chapter 6. As you remember, he clearly told us what we are to know in regards to our faith. But then he highlights what we were to do. And it's not just the hearers of the word. We are to be doers of the word. We are justified, made righteous. We are sanctified, made holy by the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there was, should be a changed life as a response to all that. How do you know someone's saved? How do you know you're saved? There's a transformation that takes place in one's life. There's a change. You can't sit there and continue to live like you've always lived. And people don't see a changed life in your life, especially non-believers. They should very clearly see that you're thinking differently. You're speaking differently. You don't do the things you used to do. They don't grab you. They don't, you don't practice those things anymore. And they're going to say, why? What's happened to you? You're changed. What's going on? Praise God, God has changed my life. He saved me. I, I'm, a, I'm a new creation. But here's the challenge as a Christian. Once you're saved, there's a challenge, there's a struggle for the Christian, and we know what to do, but we struggle to actually do it. There's this, this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Even Peter understood this struggle in his, his walk. He understood it in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from lustly flesh which war against the, the soul. He understood that struggle. And in chapter 7, Paul deals with this practically. He teaches you and I how to practically get over this struggle of the flesh wanting to rear its ugly head up and dominate the new creation that God is doing in you. The transformation he's trying to do in you. Transforming your mind through the reading of the word. And he tries to keep you away from the word because he knows the reading of the word and studying the word and talking about the word is going to be good for you. And, and he'll try everything to keep you from that. He 
understands how important it is to be fellowship with Christians with like-mindedness and being in fellowship in the servicing of, of serving God together. And the enemy will come to try to destroy and to divide and keep you from doing that. He understands how important it is for you and I to have a good communication called prayer life. And he'll do whatever it is to distract you and keep you from wanting to communicate with him both privately or publicly, you'll just stay silent. And so many times people think they're talking to God, but you're really just talking to yourself. And so Paul now is coming in practically trying to teach you and I to have a good, healthy Christian walk so that we're walking in the spirit and not in of the flesh, which is what the enemy wants. And so as we play and look at this, we see today that in verse seven, or chapter seven, verse one of Romans, Paul is, we're only going to take verse, the first six verses here today. And it's, we can see very clearly that Paul is going to highlight or bring to light something very important for us, a truth that, that and, and we will see who he's speaking to here in verse one. He says, or do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion or domination over a man as long as he lives. This dominion, this domination that can take place in someone's life um, as long as you live. There's a law that's going to put you in boundaries and have and give you guidance in regards to the, what you should or shouldn't do. But it's true. And he's speaking to the brethren here, if you see in verse 1. And he's not only speaking to the brethren, those who believe, who are followers of Jesus Christ, but he's also speaking to the Jewish believers. It says right here, I speak to those who know the law. So he's speaking to these Jewish believers or any Gentiles who were proselytized into the Jewish faith, who were following the Jew Jewish faith at the time. He says, we know you know the law, so I'm speaking to you, but you who are following Jesus Christ, I'm speaking to you here that the law has dominion over you as long as you live. So he takes them back to Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and even verses 15 through 23, the rest of that chapter 6. He's bringing them back here. This is the tie-in here. He says, Paul tells them that sin has, shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. And then after he makes a statement, you look in verse 15 through 23, he continues and says regarding these practical implications here or practical applications that I'm trying to get across to you, how to do this. He explains more completely how, and, how the, 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 that this, this law was set up to bring light or to be this tutor to you, to, bring, to shine the light on this sinful nature that you have when you were born with. And you need to understand there's sin there. You need to see the darkness that's going on in your life and your heart. And the law shines that on you. But don't let the law, from an extreme perspective, be something that rules you and guides you in regards to dominate you and not live by God's grace that he has set up in this new covenant. We see right here in just this chapter 7, there's 23 times Paul talks about the word law. Eight times just in these first six verses that he's highlighting to them. And the truth is, Paul says, it's true. While you live, the law has dominion over you. But when you are dead, then the law has no effect. When you're dead to the law, it no longer has that effect. 
We also see here at the very end of verse 1, he also says that this has a permanence. Dominion over this man or this woman has, is, is as long as they're alive, there's a, the law has this permanent this dominion over you. But when you're dead, it no longer has dominion. Have you ever seen a dead body dragged in in front of the corpse? Judge, the body has arrived. You need to judge him. Bring all the evidence. Let the, let, let the dead man see if what's going to happen to him. No, he's dead. The law has no effect. No more dominion over this man. Once you're dead, you're dead. The law is dead. It's no longer going to have any influence and guidance on you. And so that's a truth that Paul's getting across. And then he uses a very good example. If you remember last week, he used the fact that when you surrender your life, you now become a slave to God and not slave to sin. Because you're going to be a slave. You're going to be a servant to one or the other. And when you give your life to Christ, you're dying of that sin. You're saying, no longer I'm going to be a servant or a slave to sin. I'm going to be a slave or a servant to God and God alone. Today, he uses marriage as the example. Look at verse 2. He uses an illustration here given to us. He uses the fact that, okay, there's this relationship I explained to you between a master and a slave and how that is to work as a Christian. You're to yield him, yourself to God. Here in this fashion, Paul is going to use an illustration of husband and wife to show that the believer has a new relationship to the law because of his union with Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Chapter 7, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Verse 3, so then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her, if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So Paul uses an illustration between husband and wife to get to the point across between law versus relationship. And he says to them, okay, if a man and a woman comes together, they get married. And according to the Old Testament law, a husband could divorce his wife, but, his, but the wife could never divorce her husband. So Paul is using this illustration, illustration to say, you were married to the law, there's no way you could get away from it. It's like, the, and he uses the wife married to the husband example, not the husband married to the wife. So he's saying the wife during these times could not divorce the husband. Just like the law, you could not divorce it. You couldn't get rid of it. It was controlling you. It, was in, it was, uh, has the authority over you. But once the, her spouse died, then she was freed from the law of marriage. That was one of the stipulations. Once he's dead, he's, he's dead. There's no more marriage. She is now free to marry another man. However, Paul would have opened a very important conversation when he made this analogy, this is an illustration. 
Because immediately that would have raised the question, not under just divorce, but what about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? That's the conversation would have opened up here with this, with this, with this, these verses. See, and during this time, there were two train of thoughts, and there's nothing new under the sun today. You would have had two good, great authority in the Jewish faith. One would have been Rabbi Shammai, which was a conservative rabbi who taught and, and, and stated that the only reason for divorce besides death would have been sexual immorality. But then you would have gone just down and you would have found another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who was a very liberal rabbi, who said the only reason for divorce besides death is anything else that the man decides. He, well, you can't say she burned the bacon because they didn't need bacon. She didn't have my meal on the, on the when I came from work, the things weren't in order. She's never got my dinner, my food, and I'm getting hangry here. She's out of here. Take you and your barbecue. No, leave the barbecue. You and get out of the house. That's how the liberal thinking, and today's the same thing. Oh, I can divorce my husband or my wife for any reason I decide. Irreconcilable differences. That's what we use. That's ridiculous reason. Can I, can I express something to you very clearly? Being man and woman is irreconcilable differences already. Do you know God created man and woman different? They're irreconcilable, okay? I mean, the world's trying to make man and woman a blend of one. But that is not how God created man and woman. So for someone to say we have irreconcilable differences, that is just a cop-out of justification. I'm done with it. I'm, I'm done with it. I don't care. It's no big deal to me. But in God's eyes, that is not. There's a covenant between God and bringing a, a man and a woman together. He doesn't take this lightly. Look at Deuteronomy 24.1. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and sends her out of the house. So this word, Hebrew word for uncleanness, refers to not an unclean house. That's why I'm going to divorce her. sexual immorality or uncleanness or what we would refer to as unfaithfulness within the marriage that is under the scriptures of back in Deuteronomy of a reason for the divorce. But we also see here in verse 2, Paul speaks of the permanence of marriage. The wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Now ladies, don't start thinking, I need to kill the man. That's how I'm going to get out of this thing. That is not the answer. That's not what it's saying here. But I'll take you back to Matthew, verses 1 through 6. Jesus departed from Galilee. Remember, he came to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes were following him at that time. And he healed them, and there was all these great things going on at that point. But the Pharisees, these religious leaders, show up at the, at the, at the area, and he came to Jesus testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? 
And he answered and, and said to them, have you not read that he who made them, God made them, at the beginning, beginning of time, in the beginning, made them male and female. Male or female, there's no other choices. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So it's very clear going back even in the New Testament. So for those of you, oh, that was the Old Testament. We only think of the New Testament. I just gave you New Testament references. When God brings a man and a woman together, uh, one man, one woman together, you become one flesh. God spiritually brings you two together as one. And no man is supposed to separate them. This is why during the marriage vows, the couple says, until death do you part. Until we are no longer living, this marriage is until he takes us home. Period. No question marks. No waverings. What ifs. Possibles. It is set in your mind how God sees it, not how you feel. Because I assure you, whoo, your feelings will go high and they will go really low. That's why we don't make those decisions based on feelings. We don't allow something stinking thinking to come into your mind to cause you that, that, that thinking that's contrary to the word of God to control your actions. You let the word of God control what you do and what you say. Paul takes it even us back to Genesis 2, 18 through 24. In the beginning, God created and determined marriage to be between one man and one woman. God's original plan for marriage was let not man separate. It's like two pieces of wood. If, you're, if you've ever been a carpenter or been around a carpenter, have you ever messed with wood ever before? Take those two pieces of wood, you put the glue and you say, yes, they're sealed, they're set together. And then you go, oh no, I don't want that. I want it moved. Here we go. You know, I just glued that. It's in place. I can't separate those two pieces of wood. I want them separate. And people will try to force. You ever done remodels? And you get, you want to take that wall out and you start separating two pieces of wood that was glued together. What happens? What gives? The wood. The glue doesn't give. The wood gives. And it splinters and ruins the wood. Do you see what happens in divorce when you separate the glue of God, God is not going to bear it. It's going to be you that splinters and gets torn through that bond. So here we see not only the permanence of marriage here that he speaks to, but he also talks about the principle of marriage. In verse 2 he says, she is freed from the law. She has permission to remarry if he dies. She's free to do that. Even 1 Corinthians 9, 37, 39 says, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Ah, ladies, catch that. Men, did you catch that verse? You have the liberty to remarry if he's dead. Don't go kill him. 
have the freedom to go remarry, but there's a stipulation to protect that. At the end of in verse 39, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, it says, You are liberty to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So if you're going to go remarry after your husband has died, you can only remarry a believer. You cannot marry a non-believer. Period. Oh, but he's so nice. It's us. Is he married? I don't know. I'm sure he has been. You have been? You don't know? No conversation with him? You know, like the dating game, you walk in, hi, my name is Corey, and what's your name? And then you pass your business cards to sit down at the table. You ever see those things that go crazy? First question you ask, are you a born-again believer? And they'll prove it to me. <laughs> you know, can you get, let's talk about the Lord. Because if it doesn't go past talking of the Lord, and you, you don't have, I don't sense my spirit speaking to your, the spirit in you, we're not going any beyond that. That's what, that's what it's saying here. There, she has to, if she's going to remarry, it has to be only in the Lord. Because there's one condition to whom you may get, need to be remarried. Must be a believer. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? I mean, this is even true in business. Did you know that? If you're saying, I want to start a business, I'm looking for a business partner, you cannot go into business with a non-believer. You're unequally yoked. So not only does that apply in the business world, but that applies in the personal world of marriage as well. Our personal relationship cannot be unequally yoked. It must be equally yoked as well. There is no missionary dating. You cannot save that person. You cannot convince that person to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't force them to have a relationship with Christ. It's a decision they must make on their own, just like you did, and you cannot have this missionary dating. Oh, he's so sweet. He's so nice. He's the most nicest person. I've met some believer guys, Pastor. You won't believe. I've met some believer guys that don't even match up to the kindness and the love. And the, oh, he just showers me with just... If you ever come to me like that, you realize very quickly that doesn't work with me. <laughs> I quickly say, is he a believer? I want to meet her. I want to meet him. Let's get him around the family. Let's spend time. Why? Because God will reveal if that truly that person is a believer and come into this with you or not. Why? Because we love you too much. Why would we let you go into a place where we see in the scriptures righteousness and lawlessness or with dark and light? It will not work. So not only do we see the permanence of marriage, we also see the principle in, in marriage, but we also see a problem in remarriage that he's going to talk about, and the scripture highlights. So in verse 3, it says, If your husband is not dead and you remarry, then you are an adulteress. So God says, you know, I, I see all things, I know all things, and I'm everywhere. So I know what your heart is dealing with when it comes to relationships. And God has made certain provisions for remarriage. Obviously, one, he highlights, if your spouse is dead, of course, you're free to remarry an, another a believer. But the second one that we see, we take us back into Matthew 19, verse 9. And we see another provision called unfaithfulness. It says, 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So an exception we see in the scriptures is that not only if the husband died or the wife died, but if one or the other had a sexual immoral relationship outside of the marriage or was unfaithful outside the marriage, we see in the scriptures that that is an exceptional clause or exception clause that it would be allowed or a potential of making the decision to get a divorce. But let me get something very clear to you in the language here. It's not about a one time I, the person fell to sexual immorality. But the scripture talks about a heart, a unrepentant state of heart of wanting to continue to live unfaithful, sexually immoral, immoral outside that marriage. It's a continuation of practice. I don't care what God says. I don't care what she says. I, I, I want to be happy. I, I want, I want to, it's just for a season. And, and then when I'm done with that season, I'll be back. So you don't just take care and keep working and paying for the house. And the, no, 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 no. If that person in your life has an unrepenting heart of sexual immorality and has and doesn't want to repent does not want to change is not asking for forgiveness want, doesn't have doesn't have, I don't see a problem with this it was just a one time deal but the heart is not repentant yes there is a reason for divorce outside of the death of the spouse he also we see in the scripture a third reason or an exception for divorce besides death besides sexual immorality is abandonment we see that we cannot force your spouse to stay with you. So if your spouse says, I'm out of here and I'm taking the barbecue and I'm leaving as well. And you've tried and you've asked, you asked for all kinds of someone to mediate and try to help bring clarity. But that person says, I don't want to be with you anymore. I don't want anything. I want a separate life from you. Then we see in this 1 Corinthians 7, 10, it says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. The wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe... We have a believing brother, but an unbelieving wife. And she is willing to live with him. Let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband, Otherwise, there's a consequence. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. The children are preserved on the eyes of God with one of those spouses being at least being saved, being a believer. That's why it's important we do not, if the unbelieving spouse will, is willing to live in harmony with the husband there, the husband or the wife, whatever the case may be, is not the believer is not to uh, divorce the unbeliever because the un unbeliever is willing to live with them. 
But if the spouse leaves, abandons, divorces that person, that person cannot do anything about that. They are, they're, that person is acting as a non-believer would, which would then mean you are freed from the law of marriage. So here's the scenario. Both husband and wife claim to be, ma- be believers. The fruit doesn't bear that. But let me assure you, if one of the believers say, I'm out of here, I can't live with this man any longer, she's acting like a non-believer. The husband's free to, to divorce and be married, remarry. Vice versa. The man says, I can't live with her anymore. She declares she's a believer, but man, Gordon, you, you don't understand. And it says, I'm going out of here. The wife would be free to marry, remarry, if that person abandoned her. Three stipulations. But now let's summarize. Let's bring this right around here so we're not leaving anything untied. I want it nice and clean for everybody. Remember Malachi 2.16. For the Lord says he hates divorce. Now when the Lord uses the word hate in the scripture, does that give you an eye any wiggle room that, oh, God has, doesn't care what happens with our marriage? Hello? Oh, yes, he does matter what happens in your marriage. He hates divorce. If there is a split or a separation, and sometimes there might be a reason for that separation, But when you split or separate, it is always for the intention to reconcile and come back together into that marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.11 says, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So how long should one wait to be reconciled to take place between this husband and wife if they're separated? Well, the scripture doesn't say how long. doesn't say how long you're supposed to wait. How many times am I supposed to forgive my spouse? Well, if you're like Peter, you think you have that already dialed in your head, you're going to be saying what Peter said in Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Well, you know the response that Jesus gave him, right? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, don't think he's talking about 490 times and you're going to start, oh, yeah, how long have you been married? Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm into the thousands of forgiveness already. He's not talking about the amount of forgiveness. It's about a heart of forgiveness. As a believer, we're continuing to have to... To, to forgive and to forgive. Allow God to do that work in the person's heart. Because remember, not only does he hate divorce, but remember this also, my brothers and sisters. If you find yourself in this situation where that you've divorced and now you're remarried and you, all these, these, these very complicated situations in life, just remember that divorce or remarriage is not the unpardonable sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. 
God sees all sin. Sin is sin. He died for that sin. Those who are, have a repenting heart will be forgiven. They have been forgiven. You've been justified, made righteous in God. You have been sanctified. You've been made holy because you had a repenting heart and you asked for forgiveness to God. Forgive Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. But remember, there are consequences to our sin. There will be a pound of flesh to pay for our sin, that one word says. That there are some sins that will have a heavier paying paying of consequences than maybe another sin. But there will be a consequence to sin. Don't don't think, oh, I can divorce, I can remarry, and God's just going to forgive me after I've got it all worked out, and then I'm just going to come to the Lord, oh, Lord, forgive me. No, no, no. God knows the heart. True repentance. God makes it clear in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That is why God hates divorce. It brings baggage with you into the future of your life and other relationships as well. It plays a tremendous toll upon your life, the people around you, your children. Consequences are dramatic. And yet we just have this simple solution of what? Surrendering our lives to Christ. Following his way. Doing it his way. Dying of your flesh, dying of the world, not allowing the enemy to have control over you any longer. That we talked about in verses, chapter 6, all the way through chapters 1 through 16. And if it already happened, know now you can move forward, press onward, it's done. And if you've repented, you've asked for forgiveness, God's forgiven you, you're healed, move on, press forward. And how you move forward. Now, in verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be remarried to another, to him, to Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, that that we should bear fruit to God. So our death with Jesus sets us free from the law. How? Matthew 5, 17 says, Jesus fulfilled all the law and prophets. He fulfilled it. He did the finished work. We are no longer married to the law, but to the law of love, Jesus Christ himself. We're not married to the written law. We are are now married to the person of Jesus Christ. Some may think, well, you know, Pastor, I know we're saved by grace. I know, I understand that. We've we've read it. We've studied the last six chapters. I understand that. I get it. But we must live by the law because what will people do? We don't have the law to keep them in check. So I can throw the law at them to remind them that some of the things they're doing wrong. 
Paul makes it clear right here that believers are dead to the law as far as it represents this principle of living or this, this, this right standing before God. I know I'm in this right standing. I've got a good relationship with God because I follow the do's and don'ts in the law. That is not what we're dead to the law now. We love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love others as ourselves. Two great commandments right there. Are you loving God? Are you loving others? Or do you put conditions on your relationship with God, and do you put conditions on your relationships with other people? However, not free from the law so that we can live for ourselves. That's the pendulum that we talked about last week. Oh, I can live however I want to. We are free so that we can be married to Jesus, not to ourselves. We're to die of ourselves and live for Christ. And the result is what? We see in this end of this verse. You will bear fruit to God. There'll be goodness that will come from that life that is surrendered to Christ and married to Christ and not of yourself. This not only applies to our personal life, but it applies to our marriages as well. I'll give you an example. You possibly know this couple. This couple, I'll give them their, their, their names. The couple's called Mr. and Mrs. Law. You know that? You know that couple, Mr. and Mrs. Law? The ones that that perfect person in the marriage who does nothing wrong, everything is in order, everything is in a certain way, a certain this, a certain that, and you got to do it this way, you got to do it that way, and it has to be in order, and it's it, don't go outside of what I just told you what to do, spouse. You know, Mister Law. Do you know Mrs. Law? I'm not talking about making sure the toilet paper ring is on one side or the other. I'm talking. These expectations that are set so high in the relationship that you cannot meet those expectations, that perfection that they want in you. And what happens in that that couple, Mr. and Mrs. Law, that the expectations are so high that one of the spouses says, I can't handle it anymore. I can't deal with those expectations. I can't, I can never please him or her. I can never attain what they want, this perfect man, this perfect husband, this perfect father, this perfect mother, this perfect... And then Mr. and Mrs. Law gets to a point where all of a sudden one of them, Mr. or Mrs. Law, says, how can I divorce this person? How can I divorce the law? But you can't divorce the law. The law is holy. It's, it's, it, it, it sets up expectations there that are that's true. Well, then, if I can't divorce the law, then I'm going to kill the law. But then you read in Romans 7, 14, the law is spiritual. You can't kill the law. It is only when a person is dead, he's no longer under the authority of the law, so that he can freely live for God because he has died in Christ, Galatians 2, 20. You are now free from legalism. You're from this this law-driven relationship between a husband and wife, this law 
relationship between you and God. That, that has to die. Those, these, these high expectations, these things that set expectations, this legalism within the marriage or within a relationship with God has got to die or you're going to get to a point where I don't want anything to do with religion. I want nothing to do with this relationship and you'll figure out how to get it out of your life. Men have a tendency to run. Women have a tendency to drive people away. But that should not be. We need to die to the law, die to ourselves, no longer about me, myself, and I. Now we put others first. We minister to our spouse. We love our spouse. We respect our husbands. We do what the scriptures clearly indicate to us, and we not just know it, not just hear it, but we must do it. We must practice these things. And then we need in our relationships with God and our relationship with one another to be patient and allow and encourage them to do these new tested waters, these new walks, allowing us to grow in grace and an understanding that he is transforming our lives. And let Mr. Law die. Let Miss Law die in the marriage. Because it will destroy your marriage if you don't. And then you will see fruit will bear in your marriage. That fruit, what kind of fruit? Well, we see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it's not just feeling love. It's not just an erotic love. It's not just some friendly love. It is unconditional love that will bear in your marriage, that will bear in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Put your spouse first. Ask God how to show you how to bless your spouse and actively pursue how to bless your wife how to bless, respect your husband, how to allow that good fruit to bear in time within that relationship because it will bear fruit. It's not a question, oh, you don't know my husband. Yes, I do. I used to be one of those husbands. Oh, you don't know my wife. Yes, I do. I knew what my, a wife before she came to Christ. But guess what? My daughter, who's never been married and never had a relationship and never dated, knows this truth. Why? Because the scripture tells her so and does not need to be married to know the scripture. And to teach that scripture or to follow or to encourage people in who are married in the scripture. Because the scripture is right and true. Do you understand that? to the law because that kind of thinking that, it, that extreme thinking of legalism is just going to destroy it does not encourage and then so Paul continues here and we'll wrap it up here with these last two verses Paul gives a contrast to you and I first he gives us the negative contrast then he'll give us a positive contrast and in verse 5 he says for when we were in the flesh when we were living for ourselves, everything was about me, myself, and I. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. 
It was just leading us to hell. It was destroying and causing darkness to spread within the house and around the community and around our relationships and within the church. See, when we were in the flesh, when we were under the law, we did not bear fruit to God. We bear fruit to death, to God's law. Because the law aroused the passions of sin within us. That's what the law can do. If you focus on the law, you say, ah, I can't do that? Guess what? I'm going to step over the line and do it anyway. Little Johnny, don't touch the cookies that mommy just made. I know they smell good. They look good. I know there's crumbs everywhere. Don't touch those cookies. Okay, Ma, Daddy, don't touch Mommy's cookies. Billy, can you get the cookies for us? We'll head for the bedroom. See what I'm saying? You start pulling other people in to get what you want. You'll figure out how to get around the wall. Try your driving this week. Fill in the blanks. I mean, it's amazing how the law can drive us to do the wrong things versus seeing the good thing, the fact that it's reminding us there's boundaries in life. That yes, there is authority. And it's okay to be submissive to authority. But here's the challenge that you and I, and this is what the scripture and Paul's saying. The law brings or someone in a position of authority tells you something yes or no and says, no, you can't do it. What do you do? Figure out a way to get around it. I manipulate them. I'll figure this out. I'll get around it. I'll just leave. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go somewhere else. I'll figure out someone else to do it. Or I'll kill them. <laughs> I'll take them out. Then I'll be able to do it. You see how the law works? And we have to just die at ourselves and be submissive to authority that God places over us. Or we find ourselves becoming what we see in the negative side here, we become lawless. We live lawless lives. We see it playing out in our, our government today. There's laws, but if you don't follow the laws, you start seeing lawlessness. And then you start seeing others saying, if they don't do it, then I can live a life of lawlessness as well. You see how that plays out where God knows that we must not think that way. It simply means that our this lawlessness is this, what motivates you? What is that, that, that means that our motivation or uniqueness of our lives does not come from the law? It comes from God's grace through our union with Christ. Some people say, oh, you have a boring life. Like, don't you? I mean, you, you follow Christ all your whole life is all about this relationship with Jesus Christ, they think I have a boring life. Are you kidding me? I have a great life, an exciting life. The lies that are God brings into my life over the years is unbelievable. The places I've been, the things I've seen, the, the blessings poured out of me, I can't even begin to tell you the, the light and darkness compared before Christ and then after Christ. beautiful life because of God's grace and that because of that union I have with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. 
desire to love and have a loving relationship with those God brings in my life versus the law. If it's based on law, that's not love. So the law is making me have to force there until I could figure out a way to go find some other place to go that appeals to me. There's a difference. But then we close here, and, and Paul summarizes verses 1 through 5 here and shows that positive side of the contrast here. He says, but now we have been delivered from the law. Isn't that exciting? Hello? Amen? Sermon? Amen? We've been delivered from the law. Are you, you've been delivered. You've been picked up and moved away from the law that's been controlling you and allowing you to be in the flesh and, and, and rousing up passions that are going against God. He says, we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve. Now we've been delivered and it's no longer about ourselves. Now it's all about serving others. We get to serve in the newness of the Spirit. And not in the oldness of the letter. And the newness and oldness is not talking about order. It's about the, the kenosis is, means that this newness or this freshness that takes place in our um, kenosis. It's this newness, this, this freshness that takes place in our lives when you give life, your life to Christ. Versus oldness is staleness. It's just this routine drudgery that you find yourself in life when you're not a believer. So Paul says, hey, you've been delivered from the law. There's going to be this new creation in you that God has created you. He has made you, he's justified you. He's made you righteous. You're sanctified. You've made you holy. There's a transformation taking place in your life. You should be different. You should be so much joy, so much peace, filling your life when you live for Christ. Remember the law, God's commandments was written on stone and read to the people. But now under grace, God's word is written on your heart, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. We walk in newness, this freshness of life, Romans 6, 4, and we get to serve in the newness of the spirit. The spirit of God works through your life to serve others. That newness of spirit speaks of the new covenant, a new way of living. Read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, see the, the change. We get to walk in the Spirit, responding to God's direction in our life daily. We get to have an adventurous life because we say, Lord, what do you have for me today? What do you want me to do? How do I get to serve you today? And so the question always asks, How well do you serve in the newness of the Spirit today? It's a shame. As I watch people's lives, how, how much they serve sin and serve legalism and serve self than serve others. They're so devoted to that sin that they want to hold on to. They're so devoted to that legalistic approach to religion. Versus wanting to just so freely serve their God of the universe and to serve him with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And in the newness and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know why? Because I find many times what drives them is fear and not love. 
we live by fear that causes us to fall into legalism or fall into sin versus loving, allowing God to love uh, through us to the people that God brings across our paths. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.6, God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, the law, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. A new life pouring in and through your life. And this is so true in our marriages as well. Let there be a newness, a freshness in your marriage today. Let it be come where you're walking in the spirit and not in the flesh any longer today. Move forward, forgive and press onward. Whatever you need to make right, make it right with God. Get it settled. You don't want to move forward today without getting it settled with God. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Move on. God has a tremendous, wonderful, filled, joyful life He wants to work in and through your life. Not only now, but it into its eternity. Because you and I have been freed 